West Texans drawl and drag and um. It's and not all. charming. <laughs> Hello, I'm Annette, and welcome to my podcast. Today, we're going to be talking with Gary Pittner. Gary, thanks for being on my podcast. Sure, pleased to be here. Well, you and I have known each other for quite a while. We won't say how long, okay? (laughs) Okay, that's fair. (laughs) But you have been a staunch advocate for our community uh, your whole life, Mm -hmm. and then we... uh, then we've lost you to (laughs) to a different community, sadly. You and Linda. But we will talk about some of the things we've done in our community here together and just get some of your larger, big picture views of how communities work, how communities could work and should work. Go ahead and tell us who you are. Sure. I'm a bureaucrat. That's 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 what I am. I spent 40 years uh, with the group called the Panhandle Regional Planning Commission here in Amarillo, which is this region's council of governments. There are councils of governments all across the, the country, uh, but we served a 26-county rural area uh, in northwest Texas, uh, and that's uh, what I did professionally for about 40 years. I served 32 of those years as that organization's executive director. Uh, So I'm a native uh, West Texan, having been born in the metropolis of Snyder, Texas, population 13,000. And uh, we moved to Amarillo. My family moved to Amarillo when I was 10 years old. I went to college at Amarillo College and uh, then at what was was then West Texas State University. Served an internship my senior year at uh, WT as I was finishing up a degree in public administration and went to work as an intern at the Regional Planning Commission and stayed there my entire career. So I'm a real oddity in that regard. But So I either found my niche early or I found my rut early, one of the two, because I've spent many years uh, doing that. So involved in the public sector. So, Gary, a lot of people don't know about our councils of governments. Mm-hmm. And I have found the PRPC as one of our great community support groups or, you know, organizations that really knows what's going on, really involved in a lot of things. Can you tell us more about COGS? Sure. Uh, the regional councils have, have really matured over, over the years. We can trace our roots back uh, to Lyndon Johnson's Great Society Days uh, of the 1960s uh, when uh, – There was a real effort to uh, build communities, the federal government uh, interested in, for the first time, really providing substantial resources to local governments uh, for community development sorts of things in a variety of specific program areas. But the feds were interested, and appropriately so, in seeing that their uh, expenditures and their investments were well spent at the local level. So they were encouraging the development of councils of local government so that they could come together and do some regional planning to ensure uh, that those dollars were well spent. Now, here in Texas at the same time, uh, Texas was really booming. Our state was becoming more complex as a creature. And uh, Governor Conley and Lieutenant Governor Preston Smith at the time both realized uh, that uh, the state of Texas needed to look at uh, statewide planning on a region-by-region basis and then take those building blocks and, and build them together into statewide plans for the growth and development of the state of Texas. You know, you look back in the end of the 1960s and, and you realize really how simple things were uh, and, uh, and you understand how complex things have become. Uh, the state of Texas population in the 1960s was about 9 million folks. 
based upon the 1960 census, and we're at 30 million now. Uh, so uh, things were booming and becoming more complex. So the state was encouraging local governments to come together to look for regional solutions. So uh, the, the COGS actually developed in Texas as a, as a result of legislation that was passed in 1965. Uh, the Panhandle Regional Planning Commission up here in rural northwest Texas did not really get organized until 1969. Quite frankly, there was considerable opposition to the creation of the creature back in those days. Uh, the John Birch Society was very active in opposing and, and, uh, and being critical of and suspicious of anything that was a little bit different out there in terms of local governments coming together. Uh, there was concerns uh, that the communists were involved. This was a giant conspiracy, uh, if you will, uh, to for the communists to take control of local governments through these regional creatures. And so there was some of that concern uh, here in the Texas Panhandle area as the local governments of, the, of this region considered whether or not they wanted to come together. The legislation in Texas uh, allowed local governments to come together. It was enabling legislation. It did not require that these creatures be, be established, but it was an option available to the local government. So they had to convince themselves that it was something that they wanted to do. Uh, so uh, there were meetings uh, held. Uh, there were speakers that, uh, that were brought in to talk about the pros and the cons of the development of this regional cooperation creature, which is really what it was was about. Uh, there were meetings he held across the panhandle. Uh, there was one in particular that was held, uh, those of us that live in Amarillo know the spot, in the brand new Amarillo Civic Center uh, back in 1969. And uh, the againers, if you will, brought in two speakers. One was a gentleman named Melvin Mudd, and he was the uh, Melvin was the Rush Limbaugh before Rush Limbaugh existed. Uh, quite frankly, he received a great deal of his of, of funding from the uh, Hunt family in Dallas, and uh, they uh, sponsored a uh, syndicated radio talk show. I believe it was called Lifeline. Uh, with Melvin Munn, and it was syndicated all across the country, and it had a very, very right-wing tone to it. So Melvin Munn was one of the speakers to speak against the creation of the Panhandle Regional Planning Commission, as was a state senator, I'm not going to be able to tell you his name, a state senator from California who came and spoke against the creation of the Regional Planning Commission here in Amarillo. The proponents included a gentleman by the name of Tommy Vandergriff. Uh, if you live in the Dallas-Fort Worth area, you're still familiar with the name Vandergriff. He was a big car dealer, and the car dealership still exists uh, in the Arlington area. Uh, so he was very interested in regionalism because of what he saw it to be in the Dallas-Fort Worth area and the, the growing and the... Uh, development of the Metroplex. With his city, he was the mayor of Arlington at the time. He saw the real potential of regional cooperation uh, in the fact that he sat in Arlington in the middle of Dallas and Fort Worth, and they were just beginning to have ideas about a regional airport, the Dallas-Fort Worth International Airport in those days. Uh, mayor Vandergriff also had a great vision for his community uh, in terms of bridging that Dallas-Fort Worth area uh, from an entertainment venue concept. Uh, Vandergriff was, was very instrumental. In fact, it's appropriate that the Nationals are in the, uh, in the uh, World Series now because uh, Mayor Vandergriff was very instrumental in bringing what were then the Washington sen Senators to Dallas to become the Texas Rangers. 
And so uh, he brought along with him a young public administrator who was a planner in the governor's office. Uh, and I'm not going to be able, I'm having one of my senior moments, I'm not going to be able to recall his name. But they were the proponents of regionalism, and they talked about the value of neighbors working together. Uh, while uh, Melvin Munn and the senator from California talked about the sinister communists trying to usurp the control of local governments. Well, our locals uh, generally, I think, decided that it was a good idea. The Planning Commission was created in 1969. Uh, the cities of Canyon and Randall uh, Canyon, uh, Amarillo and Potter and Randall counties came together to create uh, the Panhandle Regional Planning Commission. However, it took about a decade before it was universally accepted across the region. It was about a decade before all 26 counties of the Panhandle became active dues-paying members in the Planning Commission because of that lingering concern about, uh, you know, the nature of what this creature was, was going to be. So th that was the th those were the roots of our regional council here in the Texas Panhandle. It wasn't quite that controversial across the rest of the state of Texas, but I think we can be pointed to in this rural region of Northwest Texas as one of the most successful regional councils as we look back over the last 50 years because it was a tool, an instrument that was very important and continues to be very important in this rural area as we try to bring our resources together effectively and, and deal with economies of scale and taking advantage of regionalism uh, as we deal with very limited resources that we have to make the very smartest use of as we go along. So you talk about the fear of losing local control. Can you reflect on that in light of what's recently happened uh, with our current speaker and uh, their concerns about not wanting to uh, expand local control? Sure, to the degree that I, I can. You know, I've been out of the business for uh, 18 months, or well, no, two years now. And so fortunately, I've uh, taken on a perspective that's not quite as close to Austin, Texas, in terms of those kind of issues as I had back when I was practicing my profession. But, but no, I, I mean, I think historically of late, uh, of recent history, there's been a lot of lip service given to the idea of local control and the desirability of local control. Obviously, regional planning commissions are all about local control and the ability of our local elected to come together to address mutual problems, issues, needs, and concerns. So, you know, I am such a strong advocate for what we can do when we come together and work together uh, locally uh, with our cities and our counties working together and the, the ability that we have to solve problems at the local level and the regional level and not expecting the state or the feds to solve our problems for us. And, and there's a lot of lip service given by our statewide elected officials about being supportive of those concepts in generally. But at the end of the day, over the last decade or so, I don't really think that's what many of our statewide elected folks, the folks that we send to Austin, really have in mind. Maybe they've had bad experiences uh, at the local level in terms of decisions that their local elected officials have made. But that's, that's now changed. And there's a real adversarial relationship, which is not positive for the long-term well-being of this state, uh, between local government and our state government. We need to do something about that and, and get over that. Part of it, I think, is many of our 
statewide House members and Senate members in times past uh, had their roots in local office at the school board table or at the city council table or at the commissioner's court table. And so they came to office in those state state office seats after having uh, experienced being a local office holder. And that's not so much the, the standard anymore. Uh, people get elected to the state house or the state senate oftentimes without that kind of hometown uh, experience, and I think that hometown experience is terribly important. Uh, and of course, you know, what we see in terms of uh, the redistricting process every 10 years, which is about to start again, uh, as as politics are played with the redistricting process, uh, and we kind of ping ourselves farther and further on the left or on the right uh, through the primary uh, processes, uh, that results in, uh, you know, harder and harder stances on either side of the political spectrum, and uh, which is not a positive either. Uh, so, uh, you know, there are a number of things affecting that uh, relationship between local governments uh, and state governments. But at the end of the day, we're all working for the same folks at home. And if we could keep that in mind, uh, we'd be a lot better off. So let's talk about working together mm -hmm. at the local level and trying to make a difference. Mm -hmm. uh, you've been involved with Panhandle 2020 mm -hmm. since the very beginning, mm -hmm. since before we even came up with well, the Well, since name. you walked into the office since and I said, walked into who's the office? planning for the future? <laughs> and I stumbled around and I didn't have an answer. I didn't have a good answer for you. No. And I ask you that question, close, you know, 18 years ago sure. now, 17 years ago. And Talk about the process that we went through. Sure. Because part sure. of what I'm trying to do is give an example to other folks in other communities who might want to replicate some of the things we did and some of the challenges that we faced. Because we had never done anything mm -hmm. quite like this, mm -hmm. at least not during mm -hmm. my lifetime. Right. Well, Annette's question was, you know, who's planning for the future of the of the Texas Panhandle? And uh, in the sense that she was asking that question— None of us were, Annette. We were all planning in our particular silos, which is fine uh, to a degree. But so many of the problems and the issues and the needs that we face cross-cut those silos. That's where we were uh, missing the boat, and we continue to not get to where we need to be in, in, in that regard. I mean, the K-12 folks were doing a fine job of planning for their individual uh, districts and their individual circumstances, addressing their individual constituents. Uh, our county governments were doing the same thing with their constituencies. Uh, our municipal governments were doing the same thing. Our community colleges were doing the same thing. Our economic development interests were doing their thing. State governments doing its thing. But at the end of the day, we weren't doing a very good job of coming together and talking to one another and understanding what the community's problems were in a big picture kind of way. And, and therefore, we weren't dealing with the hard things. We were dealing with the easy things that were within our realm uh, that we could, could deal with. And, uh, you know, I talked about the state becoming a more complex creature beginning in the 1960s as I was, when I was a junior high and high school kid and, you know, 
about to go to college in the 70s and that sort of thing. Uh, our, our problems, our really serious problems, are cross-cutting problems. They're not just a K-12 problem. They're not just a community problem. I mean, not just a, a county problem or a city problem. They're really a community problem. They're really a problem of society and our culture. Uh, you know, we tackle education and uh, the problems that we had in terms of educational attainment levels here, here in the Texas Panhandle. And any one of those disciplines really did not have the capacity in and of themselves to successfully deal with those problems. Those are kinds of community problems uh, that we needed to deal with. Poverty was a community problem. And the kind of problems that you can't deal with, with this is our project for the day and we're going to fund this project and we're going to get out there and we're going to solve the problem. So many of the hard problems don't lend themselves to that kind of approach. There are, there, there are issues that we're going to have today and we're going to have tomorrow. And we just need to have the persistence to stick with it. Uh, and, and I think one of the first steps, and we certainly discovered with, with 2020, is that you have to acknowledge that you have the problem to begin with. And that's tough for communities to do because they don't want to acknowledge that they have anything negative about their community. We all kind of often wear our Chamber of Commerce hats. And we don't want to say anything bad about our local community. Uh so we kind of gloss over things and put blinders on to the fact that in our case, 20% of the population of our city did not complete their high school educations. Uh, quarter percent, a quarter of our region's populations, population did not complete their high school education. And there are a number, were a number of statistics there. And you don't turn those things around overnight. You don't solve those kind of problems with the project. You know, you can't write a check and for the big dog foundation to, to pay for it and it be solved overnight. It's a it's something that, number one, we have to acknowledge. We have to cause that problem to be ingrained in our mindsets uh, individually so that it becomes a collective community problem. So that we are when we are wearing our school board hat or our community college hat or our municipal elected official hat, or whatever the case may be, we, whether we're consciously aware or just subconsciously aware, as we're making decisions in our realm, we have to understand that maybe we need to be coordinating with this with the community college. Maybe our economic development focus folks need to be more closely aligned uh, to the community college and economic development and workforce development areas. So we have to, we have to, it has to become kind of part of our spirit and part of who we are uh, as as a community in order to deal with those complex problems that can't be solved by writing a check or finding that silver bullet project that's that's going to uh, to solve the problem. So that acknowledgement of reality is such an important part of the first step, and that uh, making the community aware, making our citizens aware, whether they are really aware or not. Uh, consciously, but making them aware that, hey, we've got a problem with, with educational attainment in our area, and we all need to be engaged in doing something about it. What do you say to the leader who was hired, like you were, to run your local COG, uh, who doesn't see this as his role? 
mm-hmm. or the superintendent or the community college president or the business owner mm-hmm. in the community that these are society's problems, not mine. Mm-hmm. How do you, what do you have to say to them to, to develop ownership of that? Well, you know, they need to just sit down and, and take a deep breath and take, take a step back and think about their community and think about how, for example, a low educational attainment level uh, affects their business. Uh, it affects the bottom lines of business, the business sector out there. Uh, typically, you know, the lower educational attainment levels are reflected in lower wages, which are reflected in fewer dollars to be spent in the community, which is reflected in the bottom lines of the business sector that's trying to do well in our community. Uh, they all employ, all of our businesses uh, employ uh, the products of our educational systems. Uh they are going to get better products at the end of the day if they're cognizant of and are aware of and are participating in uh, an active way in coming to understand the, the difficulties and the issues being faced by the educational community and how they can become involved in a meaningful way and not just sitting back and throwing rocks uh, at, at those folks. I think there's a lot of that. You know, there are a lot of whipping boys out there. Uh, you know, education, I think, is one of those whipping boys, uh, both K-12 and community college and, and higher ed. It's just real easy to sit around that table and complain about, you know, these kids just don't know much anymore. And if, if I was still around, they, they, you know, they'd know more about X, Y, Z or whatever the case may be. And, and you know, my kid's a product of, of public education, and uh, he received a great education, a much better education than I received. I mean, we're, I think we're doing at the end of the day, great work, uh, in those arenas, but we're not, uh, we're not necessarily getting the kind of credit that we need to be getting, but to the young public administrator, uh, in terms of, uh, uh, over the young business person or the business person in terms of getting involved, uh, it's, it's, it's a serving your community in the very best way for that public administrator to be the very best public administrator he can be uh, to address his local government, his city, his economic development uh, organization. He needs to be fully aware of the community's issues. And uh, you'll be amazed at the opportunities that present themselves for your organization to become engaged in, in helping the community to do a better job. So you would encourage other communities to work together better than... Oh, oh sure. I mean, I, I, you know, and I don't think you ever get to the point that you can say, we're great at working together. I mean, you can always make improvements and, and get better at it. And that's one of the difficulties in, in terms of a Panhandle 2020 organization. We all want the instant solution. We all want to take that little package of mashed potatoes and throw it in the bowl and mix a little water or milk or whatever with it, pop it in the microwave and have our taters, you know, done in 15 seconds. Uh, or whatever the case may be, I I can only do oatmeal in the uh, <laughs> in the microwave. 
microwave. Uh, but we want the instant solutions. And, and most of the things that the Panhandle 2020 type groups are going to be dealing with are, are not solved with instant solutions. And we have to acknowledge that from the beginning and acknowledge that we need to con- have the persistence to continue to sit around that table and understand that we are only going to make incremental improvements. These are the kind of improvements that we're going to need to be patient enough to look back 50 years from now and and understand that the investments that we made back 50 years ago are are what drove the successes that we are taking advantage of now, meaning 50 years later. Tell me about 50 years ago. Mm-hmm. Well, and- you have to you have to be my age to uh, be able to reflect 50, <laughs> 50 years ago. But I know but, you have a habit that takes you back. To oh 50 yeah, years. I, I do have a habit, and I don't know if it's a good habit or not. Uh, it's not been good for my neck because I end up sitting in the easy chair in the evenings with my laptop in front of me, and my neck. Uh, bending over, looking at my iPad. No, you know, newspapers are have been archived digitally out there, and there are a couple of websites that archive community newspapers. So my habit is to sit down and uh, take a look at uh, the newspapers from 50 years ago today. You know, I particularly focus on my community. So I focus on Amarillo, Texas, and take a look. There, there's a great archive of both the morning and the evening newspapers in Am- that existed in Amarillo, Texas 50 years ago. You know, we can talk about things that have changed. Boy, certainly local newspapers have changed. Uh, but 50 years ago, the local newspaper was a great chronicle of the comings and goings and doings of local communities. And you can see decisions that were made back then that were not good decisions that we don't need to to replicate. You can also see decisions that were made that led to some very positive things. And you can also see mistakes being made over and over again that communities sometimes have a habit of, of, of replicating. So, you know, I have found it instructive to sit down and read that newspaper from 50 years ago. You know, gasoline was only 30 cents a gallon too. You, you know, you learn, you learn uh, kind of neat things uh, along the way, but I, I've learned how this community has changed. I think I have a better understanding of, of how we have changed and why we have changed simply by looking at that newspaper from 50 years ago. At one point in the early days of Panhandle 2020, you pulled together just in your head all the different budgets that our large institutions and organizations had and how much that investment in the community meant to us. Kind of talk about what taxes do for us locally. Sure. You, uh, and we did. We, we kind of took a look at that to understand the investments that, that are being made with public resources and the public side of, of the public-private partnership to, to make this community work. And, you know, Amarillo is a, a city of uh, about 200,000 people, a metro area of about a quarter million people. So, uh, you know, the community reads about and looks at and hears about budgets of the city and budgets of the school district and budgets of the of the of Amarillo College and West Texas A&M University at budget time every year. But seldom do they look at that uh, as a total 
that's a total public kind of budget uh, that our local governments are responsible for, that our local elected leaders are responsible for. And, and in our case, and I don't know what, I haven't gone through that exercise in a while, but at the time when I did go through that exercise, uh, 18, 20 years ago, whatever it's been in it, uh, it was half a billion dollars with a B in, in local budgets that our locals were dealing with. I mean, granted, the funds were not all local dollars. There were some federal dollars involved and state dollars involved and private foundation dollars involved that were flowing through our local public entities to get things done in the community, but a huge public asset. And and that's why I think we we spent some time and effort trying to get our local government elected officials together around a common table and to, to begin doing work around a common platform of knowledge and understanding of their community. Uh, the work that you did in, in simply, I mean, it's little things too, seemingly little things that are sometimes a little bit difficult to pull off, like getting all of our community leaders, and I'm talking about our elected elite leaders here because that was my perspective in dealing with local elected officials, get those folks together on a, on a bus and drive them around this community. Uh, so that they can see parts of this community that likely they have not seen uh, in decades, uh, if, if you will. Uh, it's important to get, get folks out of their comfort zone and see parts of the community that they don't see. And the ability that we had uh, cruising around the city of Amarillo, uh, uh, I think, opened some eyes to some of our local elected officials as to some of the needs in, in this community. So the two biggest things we focused on through Panhandle 2020 were the issues of educational attainment mm -hmm. and poverty. Yeah, you picked two. We picked two very easy things to deal <laughs> with. You know. As you said, yeah. these are these are societal problems that are a challenge to deal with. Right. Do you think we've made some progress? Oh, sure. And, and, and you know, you, you make that progress one person at a time, one story at a time, one initiative at a time, which makes it really hard to measure. Uh, and, and hard to measure because the, the time frame is so long to deal with those things and the ability to stick to it is, is what's important and, and the ability to keep people focused. And, and that's why a Panhandle 2020 sort of initiative is not just, in my mind, not just important to getting the public started in that realm, but it's critically important to getting the public to our decision makers to continue to think in that mindset. I mean, we're all about the shiny object that's in front of us at the time or the squirrel, you know, that the dashes across the street squirrel, you know, shiny object squirrel. And uh, we, we kind of begin to focus on those things and we forget uh, oh, yeah, we still have that educational attainment thing to deal with. We still have poverty in our community to deal with. Uh, how are we going to continue to, to address those, those kinds of things? And a 2020-like community think tank, community focus group uh, is not going to uh, uh, necessarily be the kind of group that's going to have the press conference at the beginning of the initiative and a year later have the press conference at the end and say, oh, we were successful. We solved that problem. Uh, you know, we can move on to something else. Wasn't that great? Congratulate ourselves for doing a great job. It's, it's one of those things that you just have to continue to slog along. But you have to be 
you have to be diligent about that. You have to continue to maintain uh, your your focus. Otherwise, it, it, it goes away. I've seen a lot of good initiatives uh, simply kind of peter out because we don't have the stamina uh, to continue to, to focus on things and to do the heavy behind-the-scene lifting that is necessary to elevate the community's understandings of those issues and, and to, to do the kind of work that it takes for those kind of issues to become ingrained in the community's mind, uh, if, if you will. You know, we downtown Amarillo development has been something that's been on this community's mind for, for a long time, and we were terribly unsuccessful at it for decades because we didn't have the patience to do the heavy lifting, the kind of hard planning, the hard strategy work, the costly planning work, the comprehensive kind of development work that it takes to get those kind of things done. We finally got to the point that uh, we did some of that work, and now we are reaping some of those successes in terms of Amarillo, and our, we've had millions of public and private sector dollars invested in the development of our core, which sorely needed those investments, and now I'm fearful that uh, we've gotten happy with that. Uh, the public sector, to their credit, is continuing on down the path and uh, suggesting some additional uh, work be done in that in that regard. But still, uh, we're not doing the kind of, you know, I'm a planner by trade, so give me a break there. I, I really see value uh, in planning, and that's not, that's not a sexy thing to do. Uh, but in my mind, it's a very necessary thing to do, and it's a particularly necessary thing to do, I think, in an area as conservative as ours is, because we want to do the very best with every stinking penny that we have available to us, whether that's a public penny, whether that's a federal penny, a state penny, a local government penny, a penny from the local philanthropic community, or a, a penny from the business community that's made a donation for us to do something. Uh, we have to be smart about it so that in order to, to be, in my mind, in order to be as smart as we possibly can be, we have to spend some money planning so that as we make, we're not going to be able to solve all these problems. So we have in instantly, the easy ones and the hard ones, we have to make incremental investments along the way. And we need to be sure that those incremental investments are contributing to the big picture. So that at the end of the day, that 10 or 20 or 50 year horizon, we can say that those investments were greater than the sum of the parts. They led to a big picture kind of su success that we can point to, yet we can do those in incremental steps that lead to the big successes at the end of the day. I've heard you talk about the community's inability, a community's inability to dream big enough. Mm -hmm. You close this out with Sure. Words around that? Yeah. Uh, dreaming big is, is really important. And I don't know, you know, I've spent my entire professional career in the little old Texas panhandle region. Uh, and I don't know if this is a, a same kind of circumstance here uh, that it is in other places. But I certainly know in, in this region, we're still a, a relatively young region. I mean, the panhandle can trace its roots back as we know it back to uh, the 1880s. So, you know, we've been around 130, 140 years uh, in this part of the United States of America. And uh, the folks that settle this part of the world had to have been big 
dreamers because there's nothing but miles and miles and miles of flat. A lot of people would say nothing. You know, the story goes that when the good Lord created the Texas Panhandle, it was getting close to, you know, his seven-day deadline to get the world created. And on the next to last day, he, it was getting dark, and he was working on the Texas Panhandle, and he just gave a big, broad stroke to the Panhandle region with the intense, his intention being to come back the next morning and, and finish it out with trees and grass and streams and the kinds of things that most of the world received in the creation. Uh, so he just gave a broad stroke the night before. I'll get back to it in the next morning. Well, he came back the next day, and uh, he discovered that that broad stroke had turned into kind of just a concrete piece of flat. And what am I going to do about this? It'd be so much trouble tearing this out and starting all over again. I'll just create, I've got an idea. I'll just create people that like it this way. So that's how we became the Texas Panhandle. And there's a certain independence of being in this flat country where you can see for miles and the, the wind constantly blows. And you have to be a person of purpose and vision and have bold ideas to have survived in that kind of environment. And so our founding fathers in this part of the world were very much people of purpose and vision and desire and energy uh, and had built big dreams to make it happen. So those folks that till that soil, that hard but fertile soil that was kind of a concrete slab to start with and saw the potential in this, in this part of the world were big dreamers. And, uh, as a result, we this region really took off. And in the 20s, we built our cities and we built our infrastructures and we built our institutions at a rapid clip. We had strong growth in the 20s and even up leading to the Depression. This area was really booming. And then we had some good, strong, substantial growth uh, in, the, in the 40s and then the 50s. And, and you look, again, at the newspapers back in those days and you look at kind of our history uh, those po those folks were, were big, big dreamers. I mean, we're very proud 50 years later of the medical community, the regional medical community that's been established in Amarillo. And, uh, you know, there were big dreamers that were dreaming of that. It, it, I can Again, I can hear the discussions. Why do we need to build those new big hospitals out there on that hill? That's really way out there. And we have just a fine facility here in town. We've just patched it together again to make it due for another five years. And we don't need to think about anything out there. But those people had a vision. And uh, they saw what we could be. And, uh, and they were building for the future. And I'm fearful that my generation lost some of that and that we did not do what we needed to have done necessarily here in the Texas Panhandle to ensure the kind of bright future that it, uh, that it, needs, to, it needs to have. So that next generation may have to work doubly hard uh, to, to ensure a future uh, in this Panhandle region. Uh, it's growth economically. Uh, in the panhandle is not a naturally occurring phenomenon. Uh, we have to be, uh, it has to be a very directed effort. It has to be something we're very conscious of. It's not going to be a naturally occurring thing like the I-35 corridor is here in Texas or even like the valley is. We're going to have to be very purposeful and very focused and very intentional about how we spend our resources to ensure that there will be a reason for us to be here in 50 years. You look at population, going back historically again, 
uh, because of the kinds of growth that we were experiencing in our region in the 50s and early 60s, they fully expected. Uh, Amarillo had a population, if you believe the Chamber of Commerce estimates, back in the early 60s of 180,000 people. They fully expected there to be 300,000 people. If we had continued at that same growth pace that we had in the 50s and early 60s, they expected us to have a population of 300,000 people by 1980. It's 2019, and we have not reached that mark yet. So uh, we have work to do, uh, but you know we have to be. We have to acknowledge that we have a problem. We have to be willing uh, to work together across all kinds of lines here. We have to be willing and able, and we have to give ourselves permission to dream big and have bold goals. And finally, and maybe this is the hard part for us. Uh, well, the dreaming is hard for us, but we have to be willing to invest. We have to be willing to invest not only our public resources, but we have to be willing to invest of ourselves in terms of giving of your time and your talents and your gifts uh, to making it a better place. And that's, you know, that's doing everything from sitting down and helping that third grader read uh, at an underperforming local public school uh, to delivering meals to the elderly, to being engaged in the United Way campaign. There are many, many ways to become engaged uh, in, in the community, and we have, to, we have to be willing to become engaged and invest of ourselves in the community. I've said for, for years that uh, it's real easy, and how many times have I, heard, have I heard, well, they need to do such and such. Well, they need to do such and so. Well, who's they? You know, it's us. We're the ones that have to do those kind of things to make our community the kind of community that it wanted, that we want it to be. So we need to get off our tails and get busy. Thank you for your words of wisdom, Gary. Uh, it's been a pleasure. Those and... are West Texas words of wisdom. <laughs> well, from one West Texan to another, thanks so much. And thanks for your time. And thanks for being on my podcast. Thank you. Pleasure. I hope you appreciated those West Texas words of wisdom with my friend Gary Pittner. My next episode will be with the Honorable Four Price, who represents the Texas Panhandle's 87th District in the Texas House of Representatives. Thanks for listening to Annette on Education.